You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. So keep your Bible open till Mark chapter 12, and we'll continue our studies in Mark's gospel. It is an old technique. Ask a question with no other purpose but to embarrass your opponent. In politics today, it's called a gotcha moment. Create a potentially embarrassing question, one that, if answered well, will land the recipient in hot water. It's that loaded question of a media reporter or that hot potato thrown out in the circus that we call question period in the House of Commons. That question that is designed to turn the tide of public opinion. That question, if answered honestly and well, may lead to a retraction and an apology tomorrow. Back in elementary school, I uh, had a, a very wonderful teacher who I will call Mrs. Smith. And at least on a few occasions, I remember a classmate who asked some very odd questions. Questions like this, Mrs. Smith, is Canada still part of Europe? Or are addition and subtraction the same thing? And there would be kind of a snicker that went through the class. And then Mrs. Smith would say, class, there's no such thing as a bad question. And I suppose on one level, Mrs. Smith was right. It's never a bad question if one genuinely desires a real answer to their real question. However, there actually are bad questions. A bad question is when the question isn't really a question at all. It's just a pretext to set a trap. And last week, Darcy talked about getting those rats trapped in, in Ghana. But it's not rats they're trapping here, it's people. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he's attacked by questions. They want to trap him. Mark 11, verse 28, if you remember, it began with them asking him, by what authority are you doing these things? And last week, we explored the political hot potato of a question about taxes from the Pharisees. Is it lawful for us to pay tax to Caesar, they asked? Should we pay it or should we not? Now it's the Sadducees who come along with their theological puzzler. Now the context of these questions, just to keep it in mind as we go through Mark chapter 12, 11 and 12 and into 13, is these, this, this scenario, these questions are occurring during the last week of Jesus' ministry. In other words, this is occurring just a few days before his betrayal and his crucifixion. So these questions are really part of a whole mounting tide of opposition to Christ, particularly from the leadership of the nation. The opposition against Jesus is building, and soon it is to crash on top of him. So we continue with Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 18. So the Sadducees came to him who say there's no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Now we know quite a bit about the Pharisees. We run into them on numerous occasions and how they were sticklers for the law. But who are these group called Sadducees? The Sadducees were a much smaller group of people. They were an elite in Israel. They represented a lot of the ruling class. Some of the high priests were Sadducees. A fair number of the members of their parliament, the Sanhedrin, were Sadducees. They were influencers. They were educated. Uh, they were a ruling class in Israel. 
And even though in the New Testament they often appear alongside the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they actually were rivals. We might talk about the liberals and the conservatives. Well, it was similar. And these were political rivals. The only thing that united them was they were opposed to Jesus. And so we find them together. The Sadducees had some unique theological views, and one of their views was that they had a limited acceptance of the Bible. They had a very material view of the Christian, of the, of the Jewish faith, and they rejected much of the Old Testament. They rejected much of the supernatural, including, as we read, the resurrection, heaven. In contrast, the Pharisees accepted the whole of the Old Testament scriptures. The Sadducees only accepted the Torah, that is, Matthew or Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, as authoritative. And the rest of the Old Testament, they believed, was kind of optional. Take it or leave it. And this partial acceptance of scripture led to their rejection of the miraculous, including the resurrection. Now, the Sadducees certainly have not been the last group of people to accept certain parts of the Bible as authoritative while limiting or rejecting other parts. Thomas Jefferson, who was the third president of the United States, is famous for his limited acceptance of Scripture. While he admired the teaching and the example of Jesus, he ignored the miraculous aspects of Christ's ministry, including the resurrection. So in a pre-Microsoft world, President Jefferson literally created his cut-and-paste Bible. He cut out pieces he didn't like, and he pasted in pieces he did, and he created what today is called the Jefferson Bible. And just when I was going over this last night, I just did a quick Google, and you can buy it for six bucks on Amazon today. I don't know if you want to, but it's there. The cut-and-paste approach to the Bible can sometimes come in more subtle ways. I think today in the contemporary Christian movement, there is a movement afoot, even among some who would call themselves evangelicals, that the Gospels are more important than the rest of the New Testament. There's another movement that sees the Old Testament as being largely irrelevant to church life today. So although that's not the Jefferson Bible, it's still a problem. It ignores the fact that the only Bible that Jesus had was the Old Testament. And ignores the fact that the New Testament is all one. Gospels and epistles, Jesus and Paul. It's not split up. Now that we know a little bit about the questionnaires, let's explore their question. Mark 12, verse 19 to 23. Teachers, say the Sadducees, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring, no children. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. What a strange question. The Jewish background of this scenario, if you want to do a little more study, comes from the Old Testament Torah law. You would expect that. The Sadducees accepted the Torah. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5 to 10, and it's called the law of leveret marriage. And if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 25, you'll discover that there's actually no story about seven brothers. <laughs> That's an addition from the Sadducees. But the idea was that if 
someone was married and the husband died, that there was some obligation on behalf of another brother in the family to marry the widow so that they could raise a child who then would have the name of the dead brother so that his line would continue. Now, I should say, if you look back, you'll find that this was not the... Sadducees said this must occur. When you look at Deuteronomy 25, you'll discover it was optional. The woman could turn down, just so any ladies are concerned. <laughs> the woman could say, no, I don't want that. And the man could also say, no, I don't want to go there. But as you read in Deuteronomy 25, you'll discover they were shamed in the community. But it was optional. But that's the story. And the intent of Leveret marriage was twofold. That the dead brother's family lineage would not die out, which was seen as very important. For the child born of the Leveret marriage would be registered in the deceased brother's name. It would be his child. The second thing is that the widow not be left childless with no family to support her as she aged. So Leveret marriage had two, had two reasons. One was for posterity, and the other was for the welfare of the state. So the Sadducees take this legal allowance, and they turn it into a theological trick question. And they really are not interested in an answer. They just want to make Jesus look stupid. They want to point out that this whole resurrection thing is just absurd. How could anyone believe something so crazy? So people who reject the miraculous and the, uh, and the resurrection are certainly have been around for a long time. This kind of question in a debate where you set up something absurd is known as the straw man scenario. So you set up this extreme scenario only to blow it over blow over the straw man. It's basically to make your opponent look like an idiot, to ridicule them. They knew Jesus proclaimed the resurrection, and they wanted to discredit his claim. And they felt their seven-husband scenario was foolproof. Perhaps they'd already used this question to try and trip up their enemies, the Pharisees, to poke some holes in them. Perhaps they wanted to see if Jesus would deny the Old Testament law and say, oh, that doesn't count. That would bring the disapproval of his followers for sure. They'd be disappointed if Jesus did that. Or would Jesus support some kind of polygamy in heaven? Technically, polyandra, which is where a woman has, you know, polygamy is a man with a bunch of wives. Polyandry is a woman with multiple husbands. And just as such an arrangement would be seen as scandalous today, it was seen as scandalous in Jesus' society. So was Jesus going to promote these strange viewpoints? So what does Jesus say? Well, firstly, I note that Jesus does not deal in genteel etiquette. You know, you know the scene where the local dignitary or the member of parliament is given some nasty, mean question. And after the questioner asks this nasty question, the member of parliament says, oh, thank you very much for that thoughtful question. I'm glad you raised that. We need to have a conversation on this right now. What does Jesus say? He's very blunt. Verse 24, he says, you're wrong. Verse 27, he says, you're quite wrong. Look at Matthew 12, verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus said, none of this genteel stuff. Let's get to the point. You don't know scriptures and you don't know the power of God. You don't know what God says in his word and you don't know what God's power can do. Now, of course, they did have some head knowledge of the Bible, but their bias 
had narrowed their thinking. Because of their focus on the law and the Torah part of the Bible, they paid little attention to what the rest of the message was. And because they presupposed that the resurrection life had to look exactly like life on earth, they dismissed it as crazy. But, insisted Jesus, the scripture does teach resurrection. The concept is wrapped through all its pages. And the power of God is not tied to just one type of existence. The God who spoke the original creation into being, who spoke and it was done, is powerful and capable of recreating resurrection life far and beyond this present one. God's power is greater than any human mind can fathom. <clears throat> Jesus says, you're wrong on two counts. You don't know scripture, you don't accept what it says, and you don't know God's power. You underestimate what God can do. Now look at Mark chapter 12, verse 25 to 27. Jesus explains his answer in a little more detail. Verse 25, God has power to create a new resurrection reality, one that takes life to a whole new level. Verse 26 and 27, not only God's power, but God's word, what God spoke in the past and what it means in the present. Let's read Matthew 12, verse 26, which is God's word. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. It's interesting, when Jesus confronts their error, he confronts it on their terms. Jesus could have called up scriptures from Isaiah or Daniel or Job that look at the promise of resurrection, but instead he goes back to the book of the law, which they fully accepted, to the Torah, the one section that the Sadducees fully accepted, and he takes them to the story in the book of Exodus where Moses is met by God in that fiery bush, the I Am passage. The revelation to Moses was a game-changing moment. This was the call for Moses to go and lead the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And it was a call that Moses resisted. He wasn't interested in doing it. And it was a call that ultimately would change Moses' life and ultimately would change the nation of Israel. God reveals himself to Moses as the self-existent I am. The God of the ancient patriarchs, the fathers of the people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when God reveals himself to Moses, these ancient leaders have, have already died hundreds of years ago. Um, Jacob, maybe 400 years ago, Isaac, 500 years ago. And God does not reveal himself as the one who was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't reveal himself as the one who had been the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not just their past helper. He is an eternal time, their present sustainer. God is alive to them, and they are alive to God. He is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, says Jesus. He is the God of the living. There is silence. The Sadducees were stunned. They had been silenced by the scriptures they thought they knew. And ironically, their mocking question actually pointed to one of the key claims of Jesus Christ, one of the key claims of Christianity. Christianity is built on the resurrection promise, particularly the resurrection of Christ. Christianity is a religion of resurrection. John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection 
and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Romans 1.4, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Philippians 3 verse 10, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, but in fact, says Paul, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter, who in fear denied Jesus and ran away at the time of crucifixion. And yet through the reality of the resurrection of Christ, he is transformed into a powerful witness, leader, and ultimately a martyr. St. Peter says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to be renewed to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. J.B. Phillips, in his book, Your God is Too Small, says this, What changed these very ordinary men and women? What changed Peter? What changed the disciples who were such cowards that they did not dare stand too near to the cross in case they got caught, in case they got involved? What turned them into heroes that would stop at nothing? A swindle? A hallucination? Spooky nonsense in a darkened room? Or someone quietly doing what he said he'd do, walking right through death? What do you think? This was the impact of the resurrection. It changed the disciples forever. Continue with me, Mark chapter 12, verse 24 and 25. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Jesus says, The second reason you are wrong is you're mistaken about the resurrection. You have underestimated God's power. Their view of God was limited. He was tied by their expectation. He was reduced by their bias. In the words of J.B. Phillips, their God was too small. What is almost surprising is that Jesus gives a serious answer to their rather flippant question. And in answering that question, he gives us an insight into resurrection life. And we only have a few of those insights in Scripture. We get an insight into the life of heaven. Earlier this summer, Sharon and I were on holidays in northern Ontario. I'd never spent too much time in northern Ontario, but I've been a bit intrigued by it because I have, in my work, I meet up with quite a few old order and uh, conservative Mennonite uh, clients, and I discovered they have a significant um, community in northern Ontario. There's a group of conservative and Markham Mennonites who live up in the New Liskert area, and there's now about 400 and some Old Order Mennonites who live in a little community called Matheson, which is almost on the way to Timmins. And uh, so I was kind of intrigued. I, was, I, I get to know these folks, and I was interested in seeing their community. I was also intrigued because I had read a while ago, uh, Stephen Harper wrote a book called A Great Game which is the story of the development of hockey in Canada. And one of the first professional hockey teams in Canada were in two little towns in northern Ontario, Haleybury, which is on Lake Temiskaming, and a town called Cobalt. And uh, Cobalt was a boom town 110 years ago. There was more people lived in Cobalt than lived in Waterloo and Kitchener. And the first professional hockey teams in Canada were there. Those teams later collapsed and became the Montreal Canadiens. But that's another story for another day. Anyhow, we were looking around Cobalt. I wanted to see those old mines. There's dozens of them. 
and you can go and explore the ruins of those mines. It looks like something from Star Wars, some of it. And um, I was also amazed at the farmland up there. Through that uh, Temiskamine area, it, it looks like Waterloo County. And there was the John Deere dealership, and there was the, the International Harvester dealership, and there was thousands of acres of beautiful farmland. I didn't know that existed. And um, on the way home, we took Highway 65, which goes across and down the far side of Lake Temiskamine. And as we were traveling through that beautiful farmland, there was a sign that said, Bienvenue, Quebec, welcome to Quebec. And as we went along, the, the fields looked very similar. But then we came into a little town there in Quebec, and the signs were different. And we stopped, and the folks were very similar, but I suddenly realized they're speaking a different language. It's different. As we crossed the border, it was similar but different. We had crossed a boundary. We had crossed a border. We were in a different land. And so it is with resurrection life. There are similarities which are like life on earth, but there are dissimilarities. There are differences and similarities when we cross into resurrection life. In his resurrection body, Jesus was similar but different. I've always been intrigued by that. When Mary saw him in the garden, she thought he was a gardener. When the two were walking alongside him on the Emmaus Road, they, they had something in them said, this guy seems familiar. But they didn't recognize him until he broke the bread. He ate breakfast with his disciples, and, and then he was gone. And so it is with our resurrection. In similar fashion, we retain our personalities. They're shadows of the old land. But it's different. It's a new country. And in this new country, some of you may not like this, marriage is just no more. It's a thing of the past. Marriage is the closest, most intimate relationship that two adults can experience on earth. And marriage has a purpose. It's for relationship and for procreation. It's a necessity for the survival of our people, for our human race. Some people have read these words and feel the, their eternal marriage bubble has been popped. They'd like marriage to be forever. And I say, bless them. That means they got a good marriage here on earth. May your kin continue. But marriage, you see, is temporary and partial. And by definition, if you haven't thought about this, marriage is exclusive as well as inclusive. It leaves people out as well as draws people in. Marriage is wonderful, but it is simply a foretaste of something much greater. It's only a weak symbol of a much greater joy to come. The relationships of earth are superseded by a much greater relationship. In C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles, he has a, a very interesting section where he deals with the reality of resurrection life and how it is similar and different to life on earth and how it far excels and completes all we experience on earth. And I'm going to read a summary of that because in the section of Miracles, it's very graphic and isn't really Sunday morning stuff. So you can read it yourself some other time. But let me summarize it, which is Sunday morning stuff. C.S. Lewis says, The letter and spirit of Scripture and of all of Christianity forbid us to suppose that life in the new creation will be a sexual life. We know the sexual life. We do not know except in glimpses the new thing, which in heaven will leave no room for that which is past. The resurrection life is different. Not only do we enter a new sphere of powerful and complete relationships, 
we enter into a new sphere of reality. Look at verse 25. Jesus says we actually become like angels in heaven. Now, notice it doesn't say we become angels, but we become like angels in a complete relationship. Like angels unbounded by time, which always and in every situation limits our activities and our possibilities. Like angels unaffected by weakness and disease. The pop view of angels are these kind of pretty little fat things with wings drifting in the sky. But in the scriptures, angels are often portrayed as almost human-like supernatural creatures. For example, if you look ahead in Mark's gospel, we'll come to this later, Mark 16 verse 5, the angel at the tomb is described as a young man dressed in a white robe. There's nothing about wings or anything else. But always in scripture, angels are on a mission. In fact, the word angel can be translated a messenger. So like angels, a new realm of relationship and a new realm of purpose. This is the reality of resurrection life. Relationship, purpose, worship, celebration, acceptance, renewal, comfort, and restoration. This is the life of heaven, the resurrection life. Let me just remind you of a few verses from Scripture. We begin with John chapter 14. The acceptance and belonging to all who in faith follow Jesus Christ. Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Revelation 21, verse 4. Comfort, renewal, and restoration. The pain is gone forever. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Celebration, worship like you've never experienced. Revelation 5, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. A country where no twilight shadows deepen. Unending days where night will never be. A city where no storm clouds ever gather. Oh, this is just what heaven means to me. What will it be when we get over yonder and join the throng upon the glassy sea? We'll join our loved ones and crown Christ forever. Oh, this is just what heaven means to me. In the 14th century, the great Italian explorer and traveler, Marco Polo, returned to Venice, returned to his country from the Far East. And he told stories to the people of the wonders he had seen in China and Malaysia and the magnificent cities that he had visited. And because these things were beyond the imagination of the people, the accused Marco Polo of lying. And when he was dying at 70 years old, they came into his bedroom and they demanded he confess his sins, confess the lies he had told. And his last answer to them was this. Never told you the half of it. I never told you the half of it. The great apostle Paul wrote this in his letter to the church at Corinth as he considered what God has done for us in Christ, past, 
present and future salvation. He says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for all you had done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of forgiveness, that through the cross of Christ, sin and guilt are washed away. We thank you for the promise of everlasting life, the power of the resurrection, the hope of heaven. Renew us with the wonder of your salvation. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.